My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. What's up, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morales. This is my co-host and favorite transformational coach, coach Jason Bryant. I might be his favorite. I don't know how many you actually know. <laughs> so I'm know, glad to be in that club. I know about 10. Okay, well, there right. you go. That puts you at the top of the list. Well, I like that. Hey, you. love you, Jay. Good to be with you Me back. Too. Good Thank to be you. back here at Darling New Media Studios with yes, our sir. old friend, Michael Stone, also known as Stone, a.k.a. Stony Boy, a.k.a. Stony Boy Lopes. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Stony a, a boy. Long time Boy. friend, um, brother, formerly incarcerated. Uh, we'll get into his story in a minute, but we spent a lot of time together. Just so you know, everybody, you see that hat backwards, that MLB hat. We'll get into uh, some of our early memories of uh, of uh, softball and sports with this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jason's got a different experience than me, but I'll let Jason kick it off. Oh, I get to go first? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so Stone, good to see you. Rich and, I, see you, Jay. Rich and I were actually talking about, you know, some of our early encounters in sports. And, you know, for me, one of my fondest memories of softball was the first year I played, like, organized in prison. And it was during mm-hmm. a weekday league. And it was on a team mm-hmm. called Gang Green. <laughs> yeah and uh you know old jay money he was our coach and uh you were our mm. first baseman and yep. we were we had a good team we had big bats uh yeah. a little bit of dysfunction i remember there'd be a little bit of dysfunction <laughs> a lot of dysfunction <laughs> <laughs> right. but prison we, sports yeah prison sports but but we went in like just through our athleticism into the championship and we weren't expected to win, but we right. did, we did. And it was, a, it ended up being a great season and one of my fondest memories of softball. But then I was sharing with Rich a little bit earlier how I have another great memory of a championship with you, but it wasn't softball, it was basketball. Yeah. The Warriors. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, so again, my first experience playing organized, like, basketball in prison was with you on a team Mm -hmm. called the Warriors and we weren't a deep squad there was only like maybe 10 of us on the roster and I didn't know I was I knew the least about basketball I was really just out there to try and get people tired by running around (laughs) (laughs) but but again in the championship we were the underdogs because if you remember the, the team we were playing they had like a bench of like 15 people they had some great players they had you know, little row, uh, tiny mm. row, and all these <laughs> all the rows. Pi had all these guys that were ballers, and you know we had our nine man squad. But once again, we won, and uh, yes, sir, we were champs. So, but didn't didn't you say that he went to visit? Well, on that I, day? well, I, I I think it was either Stone. I know Ken Dog had a visit. A couple of players had a visit, and and including our coach, who was mm. um, TV. Yeah. And, and, and I said, look, I was trying to negotiate with the guy on the side. I said, look, we don't even have our whole team here. Is it, are you going to feel good getting this win when we don't even have our whole squad here? And the guy said, he said, well, you know what, Jay, we just want that championship. So yeah, we're going to feel real good about it. <laughs> and I told him, I said, now if we win, just know that's feedback. That's feedback because, you know, I was looking for a little bit of grace. You didn't give it to us and we won. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I believe it was a coach. I think it was the coach that went to a visit. Okay. I, I, I was there. Yeah, we was there, but we were short. We were short, <laughs> but we came through. So We came through. We, so we got it. That's what I want to say. Like, my, my memories of Stone in sports, like, you know, my firsts. My firsts in softball, my firsts in basketball, championship both time, underdogs both yeah. time. And uh, I'm just super glad to be sharing this space with you and, and, sh- and hear some of your story Definitely. and share some of uh, our experiences together. Great. Yep. Absolutely, Jay. Absolutely. Yep. I think Rich had a different yeah. different experience, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna tell on myself again. No, but uh, one one thing that uh, Ted always says is he goes, "You go to war with the army that you got. You go to war with the army that you have, not the one that you don't have." So, you know, way to step up and win that one. Yeah, I remember when uh, you were on Gang Green and, and uh, you you whooped us in the softball league. On the That's why he league. remembers because we what beat I, him. <laughs> But what I remember more than that is uh, he was. Uh, uh, I always. Wa- I wish he would have been our first baseman because 
we always dibble dabble with different first basemen. Um, uh, even Wayne Moreland, old Satchel Page, uh, <laughs> the oldest man in baseball, <laughs> the biggest hands in prison. The man had hands. Yeah. He was about only about an inch or two taller than me, but his hands were about this big. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, they were yeah. mint themselves. But I remember playing uh playing softball with you, and I'm like, man, that guy. Because I know that you have a background where you could have played major league, and I like to hear a little bit about that. And um, but I re- I remember if he goes three for three or four for four, we're in trouble. So, I mean, I was raised by a toxic male, uh, <laughs> toxic masculinity uh, male in sports. My dad, you know, this guy. He never let us beat us one time, and, and it was during the Gary Payton and the Carl Malone and the, you know, Michael Jordan area where you try to get in your opponent's head, and I remember saying, he ain't going to hit, he's going to strike out, or I'll, I'll just be trying to antagonize you from the other side. And every once in a while, I hear, shut up, Rich. <laughs> and I, then I knew to shut my mouth because <laughs> I got quiet over there finally. But what do you remember about those days, Stone? Um, one of the, one of the things that I, I remembered a lot about Soledad when I first got to Soledad, because at that point, um, nine years into my sentence, I hadn't got to really play no softball, um, let alone baseball, right. uh, at Ironwood, we had a riot right after we got, I got there between the blacks and the whites and it was during a softball game. So they took the bats and the balls away. So I was so excited about actually coming to a prison where I could play ball. And I'll never forget it because the first, you guys don't know this, but the first team that I was on was Jerry's kids. Oh uh, yeah. I didn't know that. And yeah. And when I first got over there, I was in sea wing with Jerry and um, he happened to be the first person to ever ask me if I, you know, I played any sports. And I said, yeah, I played ball. I played baseball. I played basketball. And he said, well, you want to play on our softball team? And I was like, oh, sure, I'll play. But I didn't know that they were like a bunch of misfits, like we'll never win a game kind of thing. The, na- the name didn't um, give it away? Oh, and yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't know the name until actually the right. first game. Right. But, you know, I've always been one of them guys that my father always taught me that, you know, to be a, a good sport sure. and, and to finish what you start, you know. So I went ahead and finished that, that season with Jerry. and I, right. But I told him at the end of the season I was going to have to leave and go right. play somewhere else. Well, that was- but um, I, really, I really enjoyed those, those times, you know, the competitive thing because that's what I grew up do- doing. I just was, uh, I was still really caught up in that toxic masculinity and, you know, when it all cost and yeah. being hard on people. Like I was, I remember a situation when me and Ted on our first time we played together when me and him almost got, got down in the dugout right? because I yelled at him for missing a throw to first base and he was at second base. And uh, I'm just really glad that it didn't turn into something, you know, that it could have. Um, but yeah, man, I really, I really enjoy those. Soledad I think was the best, prison I was at because of the sports program because it was you know interracial so yeah I enjoyed it I didn't enjoy uh soldiers for Christ always <laughs> whooping on everybody after that you so, know I, you know uh, I remember look, being robbed. so we were intentional we, were, we weren't going to bring that up the second part of your experience <laughs> in softball because you you went to another team that was ended up being a good team Sharknado yeah. was a competitive team yeah uh, yeah but Sharknado. unfortunately unfortunately like every other team on the field, you came across the evil empire or the, the good empire, depending <laughs> on your perspective of, sold, of, of soldiers for Christ. And, you know, we, we, uh, yeah, we yeah. Pretty good, pretty you guys good did team. it. You, you, you guys were doing, I remember I was on that team affliction with, with big Rob too. Yep. We had a great team. We had a great team, but I remember we went to the championship. We were the favorites and got beat by, uh, Soldiers. What was it? What was the name? Of, no, the dorm. Um, East dorm. East dorm. Oh, okay. They they were they were the lowest seed. We were the highest seed. We got to play in that first, and they whooped our butts. Yeah. Oh. And coach coach made us take all our jerseys off. Said he was going to burn them. He that we didn't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Big Rob. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Hey Stone, tell us a little bit about uh. Well, how long have you been out now? Um, I'm going on my 10th month, 10th month, almost a year now. And how long were mm-hmm. you incarcerated? 20 years, 20 years. And, I, mm-hmm. uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, your background. I mean, since it's related to, we were having a sports conversation, we spent over a decade together. Um, and you know what? I don't remember 
I don't, I, I of course remember soldiers for Christ and most, and almost all of my teammates and heck, there's so many out now we could put the team together out here and you'd be welcome to play mm-hmm. with us. But the, the <laughs> I don't remember all the games. I remember, I remember uh, some of the games and some of the experiences, but I remember the camaraderie. And like you said, it was the only place that we created an environment where interracial sports is allowed. And we're talking to 2021 here and people that are listening to this podcast may think like, what are you talking about interracial sports? But in, in California prisons are still highly segregated. And, and even in there, many of the teams were either all Mexican or they all black or, and, um, and we were fighting hard to have teams of all people, older, younger, brown, white, Asian and um, and that was a time when we were free in a way, you know, we were like kids again and being free, playing a game. And of course, we're competitive. And afterwards, you know, we'd hug it out and and walk past each other like the old, uh, you know, T-ball or um, little league games or high five at the top. And uh, it was some good memories, man. And we have a bond that I don't, I don't think will. It unites us something about something about the time we spent together and the lifers and the and the amount of time you, know, you could see. I could pick up with you tomorrow and it would be like we didn't miss a beat. <clears throat> so something special was there. But uh Absolutely. What about your journey though on your way there? I mean, it doesn't sound like you went like Jason and I were incarcerated twenty years old. Sounds like you were uh got there a little later. What led up to that? What's your little bit of your background and connected to sports as well? Okay, well, um, you know, I was, I grew up in the Midwest. I should say I was born, I was born in Indiana. Um, my father, you know, he was, he was an athlete. Uh, I think we, st- I started playing sports at about four years old, basketball and baseball. Um, I remember him being real tough on me in the beginning. Mom would tell me stories that in the beginning I wanted to quit. I didn't want to do it because he was so hard on me. Um, and that's at four years old. I remember him building a pitcher's mound in the backyard and having me going out there throwing balls at four or five years old. But I remember my first, um, the first time I got a tryout for Pee Wee. Back east, it was it was Pee Wee. It wasn't T-ball. Mm. And um, I remember going out there and just throwing the ball further than anyone, hitting the ball better than anyone because of what Pops did at least a year before I, I started playing. And it was like a domino effect from that point. You know, every year I got better. He constantly pushed me. I played basketball at the boys club and the YMCA at the same time. I'd go from one game to the next. And um, the only problem with me was is that I had, I had a learning disability. And it was diagnosed at a very early age. I really think that I had attention deficit disorder too because now knowing uh, the symptoms of that diagnosis, that's kind of what it was with me. I couldn't sit in a desk and pay attention because I just didn't know what was going on. So sports was always my outlet. It was always where I could shine. It was always where I could show that, um, I was worth something. And, um, I remember they took me to Indiana state university to have me tested. And that's when they said that I, I had this learning disability and they told my parents that California had the best education system for um, learning disabilities. And right around that time, my father worked at a glass company called Midland Glass that um, gave him the opportunity to transfer and go to another company out in California. And there was one down in Pomona, California, and then one up in the Bay Area, and he chose the one in Pomona. Um, So that's when we came to California. It was about 1980. and right off the bat, we, we, he got me into sports, but I noticed, I noticed that California was way different than the Midwest, you know, just like, for example, the YMCA's, there was like three YMCA's that we went to that didn't even have gyms. It was all outdoors. And my pops couldn't understand how there was no gyms that everything was outside. Wow. Uh, and then the little leagues that we played on, it was really, it, I, it, it seems to me in the Midwest where I played at, all the families were involved. Uh, the community was involved. You know, um, it was always a big thing. And then you come out here in the particular league that I played in, Montclair Eastern, 
really a lot of parents would just drop their kids off and leave. Right. Mm. You know, um, not as invested. But I was a kid. Yeah. Right. I was a kid. I just, you know, all I did was play ball. My pops will tell you to this day that he thinks his biggest mistake was bringing me to California. Uh, he thinks if I would have stayed back East, um, my sports, I probably would have uh, thur- uh, flourished in sports. But when I got to California, I got introduced to hip hop, you know, and break dancing and uh, girls, you know, it was, it all happened so fast. Sure. Uh, but sports was, uh, sports was always the platform where I could shine. And um, going to school was always hard. I got held back in the fourth grade. They decided to hold me back. So I was always behind all my friends. Um, I just, I couldn't, that school was just not for me. I fought at an early age, fifth grade. I was always fighting people. Um, I had kids that were coming to fight me from the junior high school, you know, and it, it was, it, I had to take cabs to different schools because I get kicked out of schools. Stone, so it was Stone. very dysfunctional. Stone, what do you, yeah. what do you, what do you think contributed to kind of that mentality of like wanting to fight from a young age? Do you think it was sports or was it something that you you picked up from pops or what, what are some of your thoughts? Well, about? you know, pops, Pops taught me how to fight when I was probably about five or six. Gotcha. Yeah, he made me fight my best friend. Yeah. And my best friend, um, he was, you know, he was he was throwing punches. He was punching me in the face, and all I wanted to do was wrestle. Right. And so Pops taught me how to fight at an early age, but he told me, you know, you better never start a fight. But if someone starts a fight with you, you better finish it. Mm. So when I got to California and I started going to school, I – it seemed like a lot of the kids, like, for example, Mexicans, you know, I, I didn't know what Mexicans were. I didn't, I didn't understand their culture. And I, we had a bunch of them at the school that I went to and they always seemed to want to challenge me in some way. And I would just, I get off. I, I, you know, I wouldn't even wait. I just start fighting. And, uh, I got a, I got a pretty good reputation of being a fighter in that little neighborhood and, it seemed like everybody was coming to challenge me. There was times where half the school would be out in my front yard and some kid be knocking on my door, wanting me to come outside and fight. Wow. And, uh, so, you know, that's, that's why I'd have to take cabs to other schools, you know, and things would go well over there for me. And then I end up getting into it with somebody. I went, I think I went to three different elementaries, three different junior highs, two different high schools, you know, but sports was always, it was always where I could, you know, I could uh, perform at a higher level, and I always got all my credibility from sports and fighting. But when I got down to – once I came down to Montclair High School and started going there for my sophomore, junior, and senior year, um, the gangbanging really started developing because right. my parents got a divorce when I was 14. And when they divorced, I called that the crossroad moment because they were so caught up in what was happening with – with their lives and how my mother was going to be a single mom that they kind of just forgot about me. Mm. And uh, I was kind of in limbo. So, um, I turned to the streets. My homeboys parents were, were always like family to me. I'd always want to be with them and not at home. And, um, you know, I think that's where it all went. It all went bad. I used to go to school and they would just pass me just to show up because I was the star pitcher or I was the star basketball player. I didn't even have to do, do anything in class. Yeah. Right. Um, but the only problem is I just, I had a bad attitude and I fought a lot. So I was always getting kicked out of school. Um, my senior year, my counselor called me in the first few days and told me, look, I don't even know why you're here. Why are you going to school here? There's no way you're going to graduate. Right. And I said, cause I want to play ball my, my last year of school. And he put me on a contract and said, okay, well, look, first time you ditch class, first time you get into a fight, you're out of here. I think two weeks into the school year, I ended up getting into a fight and got kicked out of school. And then it was just a matter of going to the streets. It was trying to find, I think at that point, what was happening with me is I was trying to find that, that platform that sports used to do for me. You know, I, I wanted that notoriety. I wanted that, that, yeah. And, um, I had an older homie that knew me from, since I was, you know, in the fifth grade, I, his little brother was my best friend, but he was a big time drug dealer. And he, he kind of took me under his wing. Um, I started working for him at 18, carrying guns and, and, um, watching his back and paying attention. He'd always tell me, don't say nothing, just watch, 
you know, don't ask questions, just watch. So I learned to anticipate things. I learned how to pay attention and try to anticipate what he wanted and what he needed. Um, but most of the time he just used my violent, uh, persona. I, you know, whenever he tell me, I just, I do whatever he told me to do, but that was the beginning stages of my criminality and my criminal history was working for him and learning the game. Um, do you feel like, and right around that same time, go ahead. I was going to ask, do you feel like, like some of the, uh, fighting and the ways of thinking about like not turning down a fade and you know the lineup on the, on the front lawn and, and you can get that do you think that that definitely contributed to you making that choice after your parents to, uh, decided to divorce absolutely sure I, absolutely i but you know i used to get a lot of whippings i used to get whooped a lot as a kid yeah and i remember one of the psychologists uh, told me later on down the line was is, is that behavior or that that punishment that I used to get taught me that whenever you did something wrong, you had to do something physically to someone. So whenever anybody wouldn't do what I wanted them to do, or if they, you know, disrespected me in any way, I had to show with violence. Um, that's how I, that's how I responded. It was violently. Um, so yeah, right around that time, but you know, I was still doing other things like music. Uh, I had a couple twin, uh, the twin MCs, two of my buddies, um, that really got me into music, um, learning how to write raps, learning how to count bars. And, um, I started doing that a lot. I was spending a lot of time with them at the same time I was gangbanging and running the streets and, and working for the big homie. And I ended up, um, going to Venice beach. I got into a, a, a freestyle rap contest and I won and at that time, Quincy Jones's son, QD3, was out there on the boardwalk. He was observing. He approached me and uh, asked me if I was signed with anybody. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around, what do you mean signed? What are you talking about? And he said, are you signed to any record deal? And I'm like, no. And he said, do you want to be? And from that point on, I it was just, it was like a dream. Right. But he bamboozled the hell out of me. <laughs> okay. Because everything that he told me, that the contract was going to be, it was, it was a compilation album. There were six artists on the album. He was looking for West coast, um, MCs, new, a new flavor. Um, uh, Warner brothers was going to start a hip hop label under quest records. So it was his job to find these new artists. And, um, I got paid $10,000 to sign the contract five up front five after I did my two songs, Um, We recorded in Echo Sound Studios. I met Ice Cube, and that's when they were doing Yo-Yo's album and Jinx and um, DJ Aladdin and, you know, the Mad Circle. How old were you at that time? How old were you? I was 19. 19, okay. I was 19. So you say... And I just just had a kid. Right. Okay. Yeah, I had just had a a kid, and, you know... um, I wasn't trying to have a kid, right? Right. <laughs> you know, but her mom, her mom, uh, when I signed the deal, I thought her mom was trying to manipulate me. I didn't think that the baby was mine. So I told her we're going to have a DNA test. Once the baby is born, she felt disrespected and she took off and left and went back to Detroit. So I didn't get to see my daughter until she was nine months old. That's the first time I saw her. So that was like, you know, almost a year later, but, um, so when I signed that deal with them, at the same time, I was still doing the dirt working for right. the drug dealer. He ended up becoming my manager. Um, he found a way where he seen that he could wash his money through me. Uh, we went and got a music attorney, and we found out that the contract I signed was like I sold my soul. Mm. They were only obligated to give me $1,000 a year. I didn't get no uh, royalties from the record sales. It was really bad. I should have never signed it. Um, but when I brought the contract home to my pops, uh, we, it wasn't like we went and got a lawyer to go over it. He said, well, what'd he say? And I told him what he said. And he said, well, it sounds good to me. Go ahead. You know, sign that, <laughs> sign it. Yeah. And, we um, learn, yeah, we live and we learn. So my manager at the time, you know, which was a drug dealer, he gets me a lawyer. Uh, we're trying to get out of contract and we went and talked to Quincy. I had, uh, opportunity at Capitol Records that they wanted to sign me, but I had to get out of the contract with Warner Brothers. 
And um, Quincy told me, well, look, I'm going to go ahead and talk to the lawyers. We're going to see my lawyers. My, my manager said he'll pay him back all the money. He'll pay back the money for the studio time. So there's no loss. He said he was going to contact his lawyers and then he was going to call me back. Um, but next thing you know, we got a box and they pressed everything. I had CDs and albums and we were trying to prevent that before it happened. So um, it kind of locked me in for a minute. But I would, like I said, I was still doing dirt. Right. And I end up, a few weeks later, I end up getting into it with some people at a hotel. And I shot up the hotel. I was drunk. I end up getting arrested for attempted murder. Um, I was trying to get the rest of my money through QD, but he found out I was incarcerated. So he, they, they released me from contract for breach of contract. Um, but they took my name. I could never use that name again. They took all the material I had. I could never use that. And that was that was the first time I ended up in prison was because of me shooting up that hotel. That was my first prison term. What happened when you got out? And that was in 1992. What happened when you got out? Um, when I got out, I when I got out, I had a buddy um, that we were recording with. His name was Rhythm D. He had just while I was locked up, he had signed deals with Ruthless. He was he did Easy E's last album. And, um, so the plan was, is when I got out, I was supposed to go back into this studio and start recording again and trying to, to get my music out. Um, my manager, Manny, me and him parted ways because he refused to bail me out when I first got arrested. And I felt like, you know, I felt betrayed because of everything that I did for him. But his side of the story was, is I told you don't go out and do anything stupid. So now that you're in jail, now you're going to deal with it. I'm not, I'm not going to get you out of that. So we parted ways. I no longer was working with him, but the struggle to try to get back into the hip hop game was, it was so hard because, you know, Rhythm D had signed deals with Ruthless. Now he had, was acting all bougie, like, you know, I'm too little. I'm, I, I don't have nothing to show for myself. So why would he work for, with me? And so I, I went through a bunch of different producers, um, but ultimately uh, my mind was still on criminality. You know, I wasn't trying to get a job. I wasn't trying to uh, go to school because that just wasn't an option for me going to school. Um, and and it was, I, I did a whole three years on parole, but I discharged my number. I discharged my H number. Shortly after that, though, is when I really dove deep into the criminality and I started pushing weight back east and it was over with. So you're the, you're the only person to date that we've had on the show that was a sentence under the California three strikes law and also uh, released that board after uh, going to board after 21 years under as a, as a three striker. And there's a lot of people that we know that are still in there. You know, they're still at the pinochle tables and chess tables and they're still in there um, under the three strikes law. And I know that um, we had on um, uh, Zakia uh, Prince and she's leading a coalition to end three strikes and you would think that it would be gone already, but it's still there. So um, tell us how that culminated with getting three strikes and, and, and what some of your transition was in there to war. Did you think that you would ever get out? Okay. So, well, um, to be honest with you, when I first was arrested, I thought I only had one strike. I thought um, for each prison term, you got a strike. So, um, when I was doing what I was doing, I, for the life of me, I didn't think that I'd ever get a life sentence for drugs. You know, um, I remember right after I got arrested, uh, we hired this attorney and he came back to see me and he was telling me, man, this is a three strike case. And the DA is the only thing they're talking about is 125 to life. They were trying to give me 25 to life on each count. And I had five counts. Um, um, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I, how just for drugs? How how can I get that much time for drugs when there's a guy that's sitting in the holding tank with me that had an attempted murder on a cop, and he was only looking at nine years? I I I, I couldn't understand it. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Um, but then everyone was telling me that everyone was telling me the three strike law wouldn't last. It's don't worry, it's not going to last. You're not going to do all that time. And I remember in 2002 and 2004, and there was an organization called facts that was really pushing to have it. Um, the three strike law abolished yeah. uh, that, but they just couldn't get no momentum. <laughs> and um, I think for the first five years of my sentence, I was in denial. 
I didn't think that um, I was going to be doing that much time. Uh, I thought I'd win my appeal. Um, but I think those first five years was the, was the turning point in, in the change in uh, my behavior because I was so engulfed in, in the, the circle of individuals that I was aligned with. And I'm such a loyal person that um, I just couldn't, I didn't believe that they were going to leave me for dead. I thought for sure they were going to support me during my whole incarceration. They were going to look out for my family, my mom, my daughter. You're talk- but you're sadly, talk- you're talk- that didn't happen. You're talking about the people on the streets, not the people inside. People on the streets. Gotcha. Yeah, people on the streets, the guys that I was willing to die for, mm-hmm. the guys I was willing to kill for. Um, they kind of left me for dead. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because once that happened, it helped me realize that my alliance, my, uh, alliances and my loyalty to what I was doing was completely, completely wrong. It was completely warped. And the people that I was showing all my love and support to wasn't even the ones that were supporting me now my mother ended up being my biggest supporter and me and her didn't see eye to eye at all before I got locked up you know so that's really where the transition started to begin and I realized you know I'm out here doing all this stuff and I'm thinking that you know they they love me just as much as I love them but at the end of the day out of sight out of mind you know it's funny though because now that I'm home uh, a lot of these individuals have been reaching out to me, wanting to see me, wanting to talk to me. And, you know, it's like I have no desire to even, yeah, you to get even uh, approach that conversation, you know. I think you but have- when it comes to the three strike law, I can, t- I, I can tell you this, that uh, a lot of people have this misinterpretation that um, most three strikers that are locked up are, are in there for heinous crimes or violent crimes and they just got caught. My rap sheet is one page long. I've only been to prison once. My first prison term was for assault with a deadly weapon. It was two counts, and they gave me a strike for each count. So when I got caught with this, it, it, it gave me the life sentence. So a lot of us that were locked up, we were under the impression that we wasn't going to end up going to board, You know that we were going to um, either the law was going to change, or once we went, they are going to say, okay, well, we just wanted the time out of you, and now you can go home. Right. Um, it didn't end up being I remember that one of the first three strikers that went to war. Absolutely not. Right. You, when you go in there, they want you to know everything you need to know is just like you took a life. Yep. And um, at first it was hard for me to, you know, I think I told you this before, Rich. I, yeah. I, I always felt like I didn't have no victims. You know, I, I never sold any drugs in California. I was taking everything back east. Yeah. And I thought, man, how can you how can you guys sit here and tell me that I have victims when I ain't sold no dope to nobody out here? <laughs> but um, once I started learning yeah. the process, I, I started learning and taking responsibility. I realized that uh, the dope that I provided for all those communities affected and destroyed so many lives. So I do have victims as well as my family, yeah. as well as my daughter, my nephews. So yeah, yeah. it's. What, what it's did, been it's been an eye opening experience. What did, what did you discover about yourself throughout that process, Stone? Um, I learned that the the most important thing was I learned a lot about my dysfunctions. You know, I learned um, about my narcissistic behaviors. Um, I learned that um, being a star athlete and being brought up and taught with the toxic masculinity that you know, that is, is majority of the time is really pushed on young boys, um, that it really affected me. And it was always about trying to be the alpha male and trying to, um, strong arm anybody that wasn't willing to participate or do what I wanted them to do. And so the whole process of being in prison, it really opened my eyes to my dysfunctions. It opened my eyes to, um, um, I call it the ripple effect. Yeah. Because before it was all about me, I only cared about me. Right. But right. now I realize that my actions and my choices affected my daughter, mm-hmm. affected my grandkids, affected my nephews. A lot, all these yep. kids were little kids when I left, and yep. now they're grown adults. And now me trying to interact with them as as their uncle or their father or their grandfather, it's so it's so hard. 
Yeah. You know, so difficult because they still have chips on their shoulders from what I did and what I didn't do. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's been a challenge. That's a great question. It's also, it's also Jason. One of the things that Jason always says all the time too, that eventually it came to the point where I realized it was not about me. Mm. It's not about me. And yeah. And I, one of the things I like is that later on you, you connected back to sports the other two weeks ago, we did a coaching for life event. We had, uh, we had a former pitcher, uh, from the San Francisco giants. We had a, 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 a player from the Dodgers. We had a two time Super Bowl champ there. You were there and you gave a, you gave a, an amazing poem on toxic masculinity on that episode. And we're going to release it soon and, and, and people could hear it and see it. But, um, when you hooked up over there at, at San Quentin with Ted and, and he told me that you were part of the coaching for life, me and you did a podcast in there. You're the only person that to date that we recorded a show with that shared your story before going to board, your short, your story after board. And, and, uh, and, uh, and you can just feel the different emotions. I mean, you listen to that interview, you could feel like the weight of, you know, going in there and you get one shot, you get, you know, two or three hours after 20 something years to, to either, your life's in their hands. Are they going to let me go or I got to come back in three years, mm. five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years. And I remember just hearing that weight and, you know, trying to give you advice and encourage you and, and, and you're just pouring it out. And then I remember you going to board and then we got back on the call and started recording another show. And those are all going to be edited and, and released soon too. And then, and then that happiness calling moms afterwards. And, yes. and, uh, and then, so now here we are with you in your freedom but while you're in San Quentin, you were part of the Coaching for Life program where different coaches from all around the Bay Area came into the prison along with coaches inside of there. And, and you guys came up against that toxic masculinity. And you mentioned Joe Ehrman. He's on a TEDx where he, he did a TEDx called Be a Man. And he's like, part of the biggest problem in America is that be a man uh, perspective that men don't cry, men don't feel, you know, uh, be tough. You know, we're always told to be a man, but we're really never told what that means. All that we get from it is, you know, shut down your feelings and shut down your emotions. And, and there's that term he uses, alexithymia, you know, the inability to, for men to put their feelings into words uh, in life later on. You ask a guy how he's doing, you know, how you doing or how you feeling? He'll say, I'm all right or I'm good. Or, uh, you know, I'm okay. None of those are feeling words, 128 yeah. feeling words, and you don't, you can't get one. Why? Because when we were kids, you're, you know, <laughs> you try to, daddy hurt me, uh, you know, I'm sad right now. And they said, sh- sh- shut that down, you know. Uh, I don't want to hear that. Go back out inside and play. And so you learn to suck it up. You know, that, 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 that thing people, we do as kids and suck it up. And then later on, we have problems later in life in relationships and uh, expressing it. But you were a part of that. And Joe Ehrman taught that what does it mean to be a man? It's how we live and how we love our character and living for a cause that's greater than ourselves. And you jumped on board with that. So I wanted to thank you for giving back in that way out there and also with crop organization Absolutely. out here at our, at our coaching for life event, you know, so thank you stone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Um, in there at San Quentin, when we first did it, what really what really, what I really enjoyed about um, being a part of that is when Brandon and Ted brought it to my attention. First, they shot me the book, and when I read that book, it it really opened my eyes and gave me the language to be able to explain and express to the board um, yeah. what my my challenges was because I was that star athlete, and I had this sense of entitlement all the time because I always was was put on that pedestal. And it really affected me. And I, you know, I didn't know how to communicate. I, I disconnected my emotions. Uh, I wasn't trying. The only emotion that I ever wanted to, to feel was anger. You know, that was, that's what I used as my, my starting point of whatever I was going to do. It, it affected my relationships. You know, I, I've never been married. Um, I think that because of that toxic masculinity, I, I, I put a lot on the women that I was with, but I was also a big cheater. I was a big womanizer. Um, Joe talks about uh, uh, in the book where a lot of young boys, a lot of kids think that, you know, if you sleep with a bunch of women, you're the man, mm. you know, and that's how my attitude was. I remember me and a buddy of mine in high school, we used to have contests to see how many girls we could sleep with during that whole week. And, um, it's crazy because I want to say about 
four months ago, I got a message on Facebook from a girl that I went to school with and she wasn't even one that I slept with or mess with. Um, it was her cousin that I messed with, but she had said something like, you know, I, me and you were never really close in high school, but I, I never could understand why you were so mean to me. You know, why you treated me the way that you treated me. And it really threw me off. I, I had to apologize. And I told her that I, you know, I was a very, um, dysfunctional kid. I had a lot of issues. It's no excuse, but you know, that's just the person that I was back then. And I totally, you know, I'm so sorry that I ever treated you that way. And I can only hope that you could forgive me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, you know, that, that whole, that whole, um, that whole event with, with, with Teddy and, and reading that book and really starting to understand toxic masculinity. I can tell you this, that word masculinity, I can't, I probably heard it maybe twice in my whole life before I read that book yeah. or even paid attention to it. And the book is so season once of life. I read that book and I started. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it was inside out coaching. Oh, you read that inside out coaching. It was inside out coaching. Okay. Like, yes. And a, it really helped me in board. It, it truly did. I think there's a, there's a, a universal theme for, you know, those of us who made the choice to go down the path of irresponsibility and criminality. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, it's, it's, you're, you're speaking about it right now, Stone, you're talking about the objectification of others and the object objectification of ourselves. Yep. Right. Because, you know, everything you're saying, mm-hmm. I can, I can identify with because I was that kid too, you know, objectifying women and in the process of doing yeah. that, objectifying myself, you know, yep. as, as if I was uh, nothing more than, than, this, than this, uh, this thing that was supposed to be validated by uh, my willingness to get violent, my, my aptitude at sports, and my ability to, to, to score girls, right? So uh, yeah. there's some very universal themes in this, in this whole idea of, of, of who we thought we yep. were when we were young and what it meant to be a man and, and how wrong we were, right? How wrong we were. And, yep. and another thing you spoke Absolutely. about, another Absolutely. thing you spoke about Stone was, like for me, like I wonder, I really do wonder, like who would I be today if it weren't for prison? And what I mean by that is like if I didn't have that space to really look at me and, and who I was and, and the results that I had produced from the, that way of thinking back then, who would I be today? Right. So, so in some ways, prison for me at least uh, was a blessing. Yeah. Uh, it helped me to really become a, a man, a real man. Yeah. Yeah, in that, in that book. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I say this, I say... I, Go ahead, I say Tom. this all the time, Jay, is that, you know, uh, uh, a life sentence was necessary for me. Yeah. If I would have gotten 10 years or 13 years, I would have just been plotting and waiting until I got ready to come home. But because of that life sentence and not knowing if I was ever going to go home, it, it really, um, it, I call it a life changing experience. Sure. That's what really motivated me to say, you know what? If I get an opportunity to go home again, I'm not going to be that same person. Right. Yeah. You know? And, and here's, here's the thing that really gets me is like, it doesn't take 20 years. No. You, you feel me? Like, don't get me wrong. There's, right. there's those of us that had these life sentences, right? And, and you're looking in the mirror and you're saying, man, I could really effing dying here yeah right and is that what i want and 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 those of us who don't want that we may start making different choices right and we're like okay we're gonna take a look and and we're gonna transform some people they don't do that right Mm -hmm. but for all people who make poor choices it wouldn't take all that time if we had the support from the community right so people make poor choices they need to be separated from society but if imagine if all the programs you had at soledad you had right when you got off the bus on day one yep People saying, hey, man, you could do something right, better with your right. life. We care about you. You're, you're worth more than your, your, your ability to throw a ball on a softball field, this and that. Like, you have a lot of value. And we're going we're gonna to create these, these spaces for you to figure out what Absolutely. you really want for your life, right? So it's, yeah. it's both and. Like, yeah, definitely. Like, we have, these, we have these ideas about what it means to be a man, which are all twisted. But once we make those poor choices and we're separated from society, there's, there's a societal responsibility, too, to help us get back on track. We are citizens of this country, right? Right. Right. I want to say something about that as well. Absolutely. You're talking about the book Inside Out Dads. Not Inside Out Dads. Inside Out Coaching. Inside Out Dads is another good book. It's a great book. (laughs) Inside Out Coaching from Joe Ehrman. But uh, the the, the previous book before that was a Pulitzer Prize winner, Season of Life by Jeffrey Marks. And he talked about the story of Joe Ehrman. Joe Ehrman has been a 
you know, won coach of the year in America twice and he travels all around. Uh, for those of our, for those of you listening, just, uh, go on YouTube and, and, and check out be a man by Joe Ehrman. It's one of the best TEDx's best speeches that you could, that you could hear that you could invest in, in your son. And, you know, Stone, I could hear your transformation, man. Just that feeling of talking and reconnecting with that person on Facebook and that willingness to want to make amends for that, what you call that ripple effect, right? That, that not, <clears throat> when I went to board, my commissioner said, it wasn't a ripple effect. It was a tsunami. You left a tsunami in your wake, young man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so we did. And, and to go back and make amends and to live a life of amends with the work that we do today, um, is, is, a, is a blessing and it keeps us, um, keeps our sense of what is right in front of us. And I appreciate all the work that, that we're doing with, you know, restorative justice and criminal justice reform and social justice. But I agree with what Jason and you are saying right now. Um, there's a sermon series by Stephen Furtick that I really like, and it has three parts. The first one is, it's, he calls it, he titles it, it happened. The second one is titled, it had to happen. And the third one is titled, I'm glad it happened. And, and, and that's just like our incarceration experience. When you first go, man, it happened. Here I am, you know. And then later on you move on like, man, it had to happen for me to be here. Or else I wouldn't be learning all that I'm learning now and becoming the man that I'm being now. And, and uh, I wish it didn't happen, but it happened. Um, um, and then the last one is that ultimate perspective where you can look back like you and Jason just did right now and say, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it happened. And, and you know, uh, of course, if yeah. in the grand scheme of things, if, if you know, we could have got that training early on as, as kids and things like that. Sure. Maybe it would be better for something else to have happened and not for us not to go to prison. But it, this is my life. This is my reality. And, and I went there and I'm glad it happened because it was there that I realized what it really means to be a man. It was there that I realized that I want to get out here and be of service to my family, be of service to my community and, uh, you know, make an impact with our time and talents. Speaking of impact, I know that you're one of the founders of, uh, what was it called? Slam poetry or louder than these bars. Oh, louder than these bars. Mm -hmm. And you guys did slam poetry, various different rappers there louder than these bars. Um, like I shared that you did one on uh, the coaching for life webinar the other day. And, uh, we would like to you to talk a little bit about we're at our 47th minute. It's our show. You know, tell us a little bit about your work in Louder Than These Bars, the work you're doing today as an artist. I know that you're not only a you know, poet, rapper, but a, a writer, creator, a tattoo artist. Uh, and then uh, would you be willing to share one of your pieces with us? Uh, absolutely. Okay, so Louder Than These Bars originated in Chuckawalla Valley State Prison. Um, one of the instructors... Um, um, computer literacy uh, or office services, Miss Crow was given a DVD from Miss Redwin, which was the principal. And, um, it was a documentary that Oprah put out and it was called louder than a bomb. And it was basically this, this contest that these high schools in Chicago would, uh, participate in every year. And it was slam poetry. So, um, they believed that curriculum that went with louder than a bomb would, could be an asset to inmates while they're locked up. So um, Miss Redwin asked Miss Crow if she would be willing to try to put together a team on our yard. And she was going to ask the other teachers on the other yards to put together teams because it was going to be a statewide event. You do a DVD, record your poets and then send it to Sacramento. That's really where it began. And, in the process of us participating in that program, I realized that because I was a, an MC, a rapper back in the day that I, I love to write and I love to use, to try to paint these pictures with these words and to try to be as creative as possible. And I realized while we were doing that, that there was a lot of guys that were participating in the group that were just writing insi insignificant stuff. You know, they were just, it really made no sense. So when I challenged them to start using their, uh, this platform to start talking about their dysfunctions and their issues and the things that they were going to need to explain in board, it, it, it showed us that there was a platform where, where guys could do that, where they couldn't sit and just talk to somebody about their issues. But if they put it in a poetic way, they were willing to do that. 
And um, right around that time, they had turned Chuckawalla into a complete SNY prison. So two yards, they did a mass transfer. Four of us got sent to Soledad. When we got to Soledad, uh, our boy uh, James Ansar was the chairman of the writing committee. Yeah. He was kind of at his wits end with it. He was kind of tired of it. He already knew that I was a poet. He asked me if I wanted to participate or if I even wanted to take that position. And I, I absolutely did. And the four of us that came from Chuckawalla, we decided we was going to build a team over there. We probably got up to about 19, 20 guys. We were performing at, you know, the, uh, the, the graduations, the mm-hmm. talent shows. We, we did our first Louder Than These Bars showcase. So, yeah, it, it really became a platform for us to express and to challenge the other poets to not write um, stuff that had no, you know, it had no place on what we were doing. You know, they needed to really start using the platform to talk about their issues and talk about the things that made them who they are and then identify those dysfunctions. And then we call, we used to say, you have to turn a corner. So when you write about those things, if you're going to talk about the issues and the violence and, and the chaos and the gang banging and the drug dealing at, some point you have to turn the corner and start right. talking about how it affects you and what you're doing now to be a positive person. Which, which, and we're still doing that. Like today, I'm, I got a, a book of poetry that I'm trying to get published. I'm trying yeah. to do audibles so that people can get an audible version of it as well as uh, uh, a paperback if, you know, if that's what they want. I saw your, I got your guys' book and I, it inspired me. I had to do my own. That's, that's right. right. My man. My <laughs> man. Right. So let me ask this. So, so for someone who's as, as seasoned as that's the word I'm going to use as seasoned in the, in the verbal spoken word, slam poetry style, what is your favorite piece? Oh man, I, I have, I have so many, you know, I, because it's really stages in my life that, um, that, each piece really, you know, it really talks about that part of my life. But one of the biggest things is that I got my GED in 2012. Okay. And that was something that I never thought was possible. Congratulations. And um, when we were getting ready to do the graduation, thank you, thank you. Uh, Miss Wise, which was the AB3 teacher at, at Soledad, she asked me if I would say or get up there and speak at the graduation. I told her that I would like to write a poem. And I wrote a poem called Educating These Convicts. Mm. But sadly, right before the graduation, I got caught up in some stuff that happened in the building. And I got rolled up and got transferred to another prison. So uh, I wasn't able to do that piece at the graduation. Well, let's do it today. Um, So if you guys (laughs) give me the opportunity, I'd like to do it for you guys. Absolutely. All right. Let's go. You ready? Yep. It's called (laughs) Educating These Convicts. And it's basically my story on what I went through in school and then what happened in prison. Education is essential, beneficial to the development of young minds, intellectual capacity, understanding rationality, thought provoking, intangibility, visually and mentally, untouchable academically. The mind is a terrible thing to waste, but for me, school was a tough place to face. Sitting in a class in a daze, perplexed by material too complex for me to process, at least back then. High school, junior high, and elementary was never easy for me, held back by a learning disability. Classrooms kept me filled with fear, scared the teacher would want me to share in front of the class. Read that last paragraph, then watch the kids laugh at my lack of ability to read. Not me, not the star athlete, not the kid who other kids wanted to be. No one's going to laugh at me. So I would act out, become disruptive in class and lash out. My immature mind couldn't find a better solution. Courage to deal with the realization that my transformation academically wasn't going to be easy. Not for me. Extra work would be necessary. Very clearly, I couldn't handle the struggle maturely. Masquerading this difficult situation with several, several dysfunctional decisions, imprisoned mentally, hindering my progress with a crooked philosophy. Psychologically and subconsciously, I just believed I didn't have it in me. School wasn't for me. 
1988, the year I was supposed to graduate, but fate wouldn't allow me to partake, cut the cake, and celebrate with the class of 88. Sadly, graduation day would not see me. I was too busy running the streets, constantly controlled by negative beliefs. The road I chose was like poison to a rose. Moms used to warn me, you need to slow down, son, because you know where that road goes, a cage or a grave. For years, I struggled with being the smartest dummy, educated on the streets and how to go get my money. That was easy to achieve through illegal activities. I used to believe this is the life for me. But that point of view was rough, rugged, and rude. Reckless behavior with a bad attitude. Everyone knew my future was screwed simply because of the things I would do. And so now here I stand, a convict, a dad, and a grandpa, destiny at hand. A much different individual than I was back then. I'm well-rounded now. It's astounded how I found so much peace in a world that's so loud. Proud is how I feel wearing this caping gown now. A graduate. That title fits. It still seems weird feeling those words cross my lips. Most of us misfits never imagined this. Academic accomplishment. No confidence. Collectively, we engaged and made the commitment, dedicating our time so we can make it to this event, commemorating these moments to educating these convicts, communicating our growth and celebrating our progress. Congratulations, fellow graduates. We have done what for so long we thought we couldn't. We have overcome our apprehensive approach towards academic approval and what is suitable in the eyes of society elevating our persona, emerging from our cage with enthusiastic anticipation, passionate about this transformation, spreading our wings, soaring past the clouds of negative dreams, releasing those mental shackles, allowing ourselves to mourn the death of what was and celebrating what will be. Yes, our freedom was taken, but we was free to decide if education was more important than procrastination. I remember an OG once told me, use your time wisely, stay sucker free and become more than what society labeled you to be. Develop your mind and climb out from behind the crime that sent you to this place where we all wear blue. I'm much more than these scars and tattoos. I'm a graduate and now so are you. Oh, <laughs> snaps. Big snaps. Snaps. Congratulations, good, graduate. I like that. <laughs> Sir, that was beautiful. It would have been a standing ovation. Yes, sir. Congratulations, Stone. You you bring you know, <laughs> the, the the one of the early things you said it was about what you thought and felt about your worth. And I just want to remind you on this uh, uh, particular Friday that you're you have infinite value, infinite worth. Um, nothing can ever change that. Nothing from the past. Nothing you will ever do in the future will be able to change the value and the and the worth. Uh, my coach once told me, work hard for the things you want in the future, but not for your value. That's static. It's up here. Stone, um, we love nice you. Work. We uh, appreciate you coming on with the day, sharing that with us. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll add your other piece to the audio version of this. I know Jay has some, some parting words. And, and then how can people reach out to you and, and find, find you and, and what you're doing, whether it's on your social media or anywhere? Um, and, and I just want to say thank you again. Go ahead, Jay. Sure. Yeah. I just want to thank you, Stone. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. I want to say this. I want to say that while my two championships with you were great, (laughs) there were a lot of great moments when we were on opposite teams too. And the reason was because you're a man of character Mm -hmm. and you've always been, I've always experienced you, Stony boy, as an incredibly kind and humble and competitive person, absolutely. Um, who has been an honor to share space on the on the on the sports field, in the groups, and out here in society with you. And I'm just I'm honored to call myself your friend, and I'm so grateful for you spending this time with us today. I really am. I appreciate it, Jay Rich. I really appreciate the opportunity. I want to tell you guys, man, how proud I am of you guys, you and Ted, uh, the whole crew. Um, like you said, you know, just a couple years ago, we was all at Soledad on those yards and now you guys are out here doing big things and I'm really, really proud of you guys. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to come on to your program and, and tell the people how things are up in there and 
how it is for a lifer coming home. So thank you guys. I love you guys too, man. I love you too, man. You're welcome. You want to throw an Instagram account out there or anything? Stone? How can, how can people reach you? Oh, uh, yeah. My Instagram is 528stonyboyart 528 um, on Instagram. And my email is michaelrstone2870 at iCloud.com. My man. All right. Thank you again for joining us. But another episode of the Prison Post podcast with Michael Stone. Uh, we appreciate you. At, we're in Nate Darling Studios. Uh, with uh, if you want to reach out to the studio, do a podcast. Uh, you can do that at uh, um, uh, uh, darlingnewmedia.com, and feel free to reach out to us at croporganization.org on our website. Uh, come check us out. We have a link tree there that'll take you everywhere else to where where we're at. We're on our Crop Organization One on Twitter. Um, crop organization on, on Instagram and also you could find us on the prison post all on any any and every major podcasting platform at the prison post podcast and um, on Facebook Twitter Instagram as well find us follow us subscribe and um, we're looking to reach a thousand followers or subscribers on YouTube we've had about 400,000 views to date um, and we're just super excited about it so we got more shows to come later this year. Thank you for joining us again, Stone. Have a good one. Stony boy. Thank you. You too. All right. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.